Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Ann and Lewis speak with Dr. Shonda Macias, widely regarded as one of the most influential women in cannabis. Shonda is the owner and general manager of the National Holistic Healing Center Medical Marijuana Dispensary in Washington, D.C., a patient advocacy company dedicated to providing individuals with debilitating medical conditions with alternative allopathic medicine. She's an accomplished scientist, has a master's degree in supply chain management, and is also the chair of the Women Grow organization. And as you'll soon see, she's much, much more than that. You're definitely going to want to lean into this one, so don't sit back. And now, on to our interview. So how was ArcView? Because it's really, you know, it's an organization that seems to be in flux. You know, it's not like, um, I don't think it's the way, the way it was, where it was, you know, probably the, the locus for all capital. And it seems like there have been so many other groups that have been able to come into the space and provide even startup funds, which is where ArcView played. So how, how was the event in L.A.? Well, it was huge. I have, um, it was over 300 people in that room. And wow. I, this is what I said. So I was literally shocked about the amount of participation. And I think, Lewis, I was telling you when I was there, I walked in and there was exhibit already ready to like. Um, the hip hop star. The hip hop star. Um, Pimp My Ride star. Oh, nice. <laughs> so did he do Pimp My Bong? I wish. <laughs> but uh, it was really good. I mean, he was talking about his brand expanding to the East Coast. Breast Knuckles, right? Yes, Breast Knuckles. Um, it was a pretty strong brand in California. Um, as you know, I'm primarily focused on the East Coast right now, even though I did um, just acquire uh, manufacturing in California. And Louisiana. And Louisiana. Which we'll get to. Yes. Oh, I didn't think I knew about the California. This happened contract. probably within the last week. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Where? Um, in North Cal. Are, wait, are we breaking news? Is this the first time ever, Lewis? I don't know. What? We've never done that before. <laughs> That's cool. So we're like a real media outlet now. <laughs> I love you guys. This is so much fun. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, it's the whole point, right? So... So why don't we, I mean, like there, this is just a conversation, right? Like we gave, you know, and full disclosure to our audience, we always give our guests the questions ahead of time because we don't want anybody shocked. Like we'll do other shocking stuff later. Um, so you've seen what we want to talk about. <laughs> Definitely. And feel free to go off of the, oh, you we know, will. trust me. Okay. Well then. <laughs> oh, I'm going off. Okay. Got going it. off. Got it. And I'm here with you. Cool. So um, one thing I love to be is transparent and just honest to the situation. Um, there's no airs about me. I'm just, you know, <laughs> a woman in the cannabis space really just trying to and do the best I a, can. A woman of color, too, right? I mean, yes. there are not a lot of you. I, mean, I have a little bit of color in me. Look at. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you put your skin next to mine, it's actually not all that different. That's right. But I have three colors I have oh. translucent, lobster, and peeling. Oh, so wow. it all depends on where I am in the sun, right? 
I have the same issue. Yeah. Believe it or not. I, I believe yes. It. And so, um, but that's just one facet of really of who we are. You know, we are the same. That's the only difference we have. And that shouldn't matter when it comes to business because as long as you hold the competency um, and really the skill sets to do it, color shouldn't matter. <laughs> there I go preaching already, right? No, it's cool. <laughs> I mean, it, that's the whole point, right? I mean, I think this industry, for me, my experience is that, that that there are two types of people in the industry. People who, even if they're new to it, kind of cotton completely to the, the ethic and the ethos of equity, social justice, you know, making this available to everybody and those who are in it for the quick buck. And you can see the difference between the two. You know, it's really apparent. Um, you are not the quick buck. And and hopefully neither are, are we. I mean, we don't, we, I, I believe that we have drank the Kool-Aid as much as anybody else has. Definitely. And, you know, what's also important about that is having access to help others to get into the industry that, want a chance and that do have the education and the skill sets and the only thing that's really holding them back is their color their race or their gender and so for myself when I entered the industry um which was when um I actually became operational 2015 but I've been in the industry about three years prior to that so um it took a while to apply and to get results in Washington DC to be a part of the marketplace there but um, it has been uh, look market, at you the marketplace the in quote DC. unquote marketplace. <laughs> yes, I did the air quotes thing, Ann. Um, but it has been um, wonderful. the The truth of the matter is that I could be a doctor. I have an MBA in supply chain management. Highly competent. Um, over ten million in federal grants from um, my work through Howard University, uh, one of the premier HBCUs in the country, and yet, and still, no one will fund me. Huh. Yeah. So can we talk about D.C. for a second? Because it was one of the first, I wouldn't call it states because it should be a state, it's not a state, <laughs> but it was one of the first uh, metro areas to approve recreational cannabis. But the, the market is completely screwed up, right? You've got this weird layer on top of the city government of the federal government, and the city government is like, yes, let's let's roll, and the federal government is like, mm, not so fast. So. Can you talk tell tell people like what is it like to actually be a canapreneur canapreneur or mm -hmm. cannabis entrepreneur in Washington D.C. Well, you know, in the beginning, it was really restrictive. I will tell you that um, we had um, less than a handful of conditions to start out with, um, less than two ounces that we could distribute to our patients. Um, and now, what I look at the D.C. market in terms of the medical program is that we have reciprocity for 17 different states. So, yeah, in actually happened April um, of last year. Um, a lot of people do not know that. So if you have a medical card in 17 different states, you can come to Washington, D.C., and we can provide you with medicine as you visit the White House and all these wonderful attractions you in the city. You can't walk on the White House grounds, though, with it. They'll kill no. you, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Snoop did, like, about three weeks ago, so he's still alive. 
Oh my God, really? Yes, yes. That's amazing. But you know, we have our boldness and we need our um, bold players out there paving the way to change the narrative. And so I applaud those forefront people that are willing to do that for this industry. Because really, when you think about cannabis or marijuana, the best way you want to phrase it, it's medicine. And so people should have a right to medicine, period. Now that Jeff Sessions is out of office, what impact do you think the Democratic House is is going to have on changing the rules around, um, you know, making it a little bit easier for um, the D.C. cannabis market to thrive? Um, so because we still are federal city, um, Jeff Sessions was definitely um, one of those things we needed to be careful about. But it comes down to three big Um, issues that we need to face, which is states' rights, um, the banking issue, and the 280E. And so those are the things that we're looking really to tackle in order to make healthcare affordable in this industry. So right now, like with our patients, I mean, the pricing for a pound of marijuana in D.C. is $4,000 a pound. You can't transfer across state lines. So is it all grown in the city? Yes. It's in Washington, D.C. We have nine growers there currently growing some wonderful products. Um, Everyone from Alternate Solutions, Columbia Care, um, Holistic Industries, Fido, and we have um, a Baton, which is actually based out of um, Sacramento, are just a couple um, district growers. So we have some heavy players that are in the um, cannabis industry throughout the nation that are growing some marvelous products in the nation's capital. All indoors. You know, what's interesting about D.C. is that it's still a very small city. And um, I don't think we could get um, outdoor grow there unless it's in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have to have the uh, is it a vertically integrated city? I almost said state city so that. You know, you're, is you, I guess you, is your license just for retail? So my license is just for retail, but we're a pretty um, tight knit group of growers and suppliers. So, um, but we do have vertically operated um, players there. Um, for example, Columbia Care is vertically operated, um, and District Growers is vertically operated there as well. And um, everyone else isn't. So with that diversity, um, you don't have some of the hiccups that you typically see with the vertical operations monopolizing the different regions. Are there issues for federal employees who get a, who get a medical card? Um, do, do they, I mean, are you seeing federal employees participating in the program or are they just too scared? Oh, I see a lot of federal employees. <laughs> I wish I could name drop right now. Has it now. gone up or down since Trump has been president? <laughs> I wish I could name drop, but I can't. Nobody's Hip-hop. listening. You can name drop. It's just us. Well, I'm in DuPont Circle, so I'm in the premier area in Washington, D.C., and um, we do have a lot of patients that are federal employees, and when we referenced the rec bill or was allowed, um, we voted it in 
And back in 2014, I really feel that wreck across the nation is about patients' privacy. And so um, I I support REC, but I still feel like there should be an education component to any REC program. But it's really about adult use and the ability to have access to medicine without giving up your social security number, without it being registered with the Department of Health. So you can have your own privacy to choose what medical benefit you want for yourself. So um, in the district, we do have um, lots of federal employees. We have um, reciprocity for the state of Maryland. So if you are a Maryland resident and you work in the district and you need to medicate during the day, there are dispensaries there for you so that you have access to medicine without violating the law. You can go across state lines and purchase medicine and use it in the nation's capital and vice versa, but you don't need to carry it across the state lines. So if, I, if I'm a Virginia resident, which does not have a program, um, and I work in the city, can I apply for uh, a medical card or or? I mean, how does that work? So right now, very interesting. Virginia does have a program. Virginia's program is a high CBD program, but it's not operational. But patients are getting certified right now. The patient portal is open. Now, what that um, supply chain looks like for me is that, no, you couldn't get a card in D.C. because a D.C. card would have to be for just a D.C. resident. But the state of Maryland said that as soon as we establish our programs with our residents, we're going to open it up so people who can come out of town can, in fact, use um, apply for a medical card in the state of Maryland. When that happens, if you have a Maryland card, you can get reciprocity if you come into D.C. So we're creating all these different channels to make sure people have access to quality medicine and they don't have to subjugate themselves to someone's trunk. So the the federal government has been really pushing D.C. not to have a robust um, real medical program, even though you've described it as being robust. But they're really pushing no adult use, no medical. I mean, there's been this weird gray market where you can go to a store and buy a bong. And you get a gift of cannabis with the bong, right? This is this really strange market. How is that working? I mean, or is it working? Well, actually, I would say that's what we call the gray market. Because the regulations, the way they were written, there was up to interpretation. But we call it the gray market, but it is an illegal market. The The reason that even exists is because we also want patients to have access to homegrown medicine. So Washington, D.C., you can grow up to six plants in the privacy of your own home and use medication. Um, and so sometimes that medication, you could give it away. You can um, barter it, but you cannot sell it. It's against the law. So that's how that market came about. In addressing this, um, Lewis, I literally had a stakeholders meeting yesterday, and um, now the the local city is um, really um, pushing for adult use for the beginning of the year. And it's to address all these little nuances that have constantly occurred to impact um, 
the community. And so um, in this gray market, it will lead to um, minorities being incarcerated due to them illegally selling marijuana. So that's what we don't want to do because social justice and equity is definitely a big part of our program in D.C., but as you can tell, sweeping the nation now. Chanda, I'd like to take a step back for a moment you and, and talk about you personally. You've got a Ph.D. Uh, in biology, right? And then went to work in a lab with a focus on um, oncology. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And I mean, I just find it fascinating your your pivot in your career from you know the medical research side um, to the to the cannabis side. Did you see? I guess talk a little bit about w- why you did that and and what you're getting you know from from this cannabis career that you kind of weren't getting in the lab. So what's interesting is that um, my dissertation work was prostate cancer metastasis to bone. And through my career, I focused on um, breast cancer, BRCA1 gene, as well as colon cancer. Um, And what I know that in my research, um, which was I must say close to 20 years ago, even though I look so young today. Oh, yes, you do. It's all the cannabis. It's all the cannabis. Is that Lewis is making me laugh over here. I'm not even doing anything. I'm just sitting here. So you're saying I'm funny looking? Is that what it is? No, I'm just saying that. Um, I'm enjoying your present. Oh, okay. um, and so, um, Lewis, by the way, that is a that, rare, buddy. rare statement from any woman who's ever been in my presence. I doubt that highly. I doubt that highly. But... Um, Focusing on the question is that, in fact, um, I had always had a reference to cannabis in my research. And so I went to Howard University to do my work, and I worked at the cancer center there. And when I went to my advisor, um, who is um, an Obama, you know, <laughs> um, award recipient for excellence in STEM education out of 2011, Dr. Winston Anderson, um, and said, can we do cannabis research? Um, He said, oh, you want us to all get locked up here. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we realized the challenges of being in a black minority environment, the impact of war, the war on drugs in our community. And we decided to focus on more traditional medicines and therapeutic ways to um, study cancer. And so that's what's my first exposure to cannabis and some of the alternate methods. Was your first exposure to cannabis? Yes, believe it or not. No, I'm going to go not. But, okay. But that's okay. So, well, I can tell you that I have personally had my family members that were incarcerated because of the war on drugs. And because of that, we were scared, paralyzed into even coming near those environments because we had to be the ones that made it out. So um, just because of my personal, you know, um, experience I stayed straight and narrow as much as I could. Everybody talks about the endocannabinoid system. Um, when you were in medical school and then after, how did how were you taught about the endocannabinoid system? And is it something that's discussed or is it like, no? No. So what's very interesting about that is that as a cell biologist, um, I can philosophize what the medicine or what 
the um, interaction between cell-cell pathways look like. And um, what I've noticed that as I jumped into the cannabis um, world was that there's only nine um, United States um, certified medical universities that even recognize the endocannabinoid system, even though it much exists every day, just like the immune system. And so bring... And the endocrine system. Exactly, exactly. And to choose to ignore this was definitely a policy issue, not a public health issue. And so now it has left our physicians with this incredible gap of information that they're lacking. And therefore, you see why there's always a constant pushback with our medical community because they just are not educated on the endocannabinoid pathway. And um, I go and I've been to Yale. um, I've been to the Medical University of South Carolina. I've been to Temple University, um, Howard University, different universities, educating physicians on what this really looks like and explaining how the medicine works. But again, I cannot educate everyone in the nation, but I see the Department of Health as they go from state to state they are actually requiring the physicians to take some type of course in the endocannabinoid um, pathways and systems so that they understand at least this baseline education. Is it getting written into medical textbooks now? Um, No. Um, There is some um, integrative health initiatives and more, I would say, subsequent workshops and conferences that are helping but when your school or your university is federally subsidized and you decide to teach or educate people on a little uh a legal activity you're crossing the line and so i can't sit here and um, complain why the universities have not been educating in that way because they have to sustain um their businesses as well which is education does that make sense a hundred percent are you finding uh, other countries filling in the gap in terms of any clinical medical research going on in cannabis? I know that you know there's some research going on in Israel. Um, I think there's some being done in the UK. Um, uh, you know, is that are you t- having to kind of find other places outside of the U.S. to gather your your information? So definitely. Um- as you know, that I just um, became a grower in the state of Louisiana. Alara Holistic is our name in doing business as Alara Holistic in the state of Louisiana. And I had to speak with the Board of Pharmacy there to talk about the THC levels because initially the THC levels were pretty low and a lot of medical conditions respond to higher THC levels. Like what, for example? So, for example, let's go with pain management, 10 milligrams for a patient that it's on a fentanyl patch or um, taking any type of heavier opioids cannot get the same effect to help them um, progress in um, a different healing state or therapeutic state. And so what I had to do was actually do what we call a literature review um, in science and pull all the articles that can support the conditions and what has been found out in the scientific community through basic research that can actually help patients. So in doing so, we pulled over 100 articles, and I will tell 
tell you, and most of them came from Israel. And they have been on the forefront of doing this research, and we can make reference to them. Now, what you'll hear is that, oh, there's not enough research. I'm not saying that there isn't a lack of it, especially as we get a little bit more sophisticated and understanding how cannabis can truly impact specific diseases and conditions. But what there is some information out there that is very strong in supporting the use of cannabis to treat patients. So we're talking with, um, just to remind everybody, we're talking with Dr. Shonda Macias, um, the owner and general manager of the National Holistic Healing Center, uh, medical marijuana dispensary in Washington, D.C., an all-around amazing person. But let's talk about the w- issues of women in, in, in cannabis for a second. Yes, right? please. Um, you know, historically, if you look at, at like Fortune 500, there are very few women in, in positions of authority, whether they're in the C-suite or in the boards. Um, and cannabis has I think consciously tried to avoid that, but it's still not 50 50. I mean, it's definitely it's not. not even close. Um, why is this? Why, why, why is the industry not 50 50? Why is it guys that look like me and not women that look like you? Well, first of all, looking at you is very nice on the <laughs> eyes. So thank you for that. Um, the other oh part my God, of that. My wife is going to be. She was on I a guarantee red eye. you, Just my wife is sitting there rolling. For everybody her who's eyes listening, right she now. was on a red eye. She's not. You know, she's she might be tired and she's clearly not wearing her glasses. So that's fine. (laughs) And it's really not the issue of for me, it's um, making um, inclusion and diversity. And we know that it makes sense. But the first thing I have to say, what industry is it reflects true inclusion and diversity? None. Clearly none. But but this is an industry that's been built on on the back and the blood of brown and, and black people who have gone to jail. They have been the entire distribution chain. It's not like you you know, you saw a lot of um, you know, white guys on the street corner selling or you saw white guys going to jail. But it's now the white guys who are the owners and operators of the multi state companies and you know so how was cotton then it's the same thing we're out in the fields we're out picking and and we're the ones driving the industry for the immobilization or the mobilization of the u.s economy and yet and still we don't get a part of the ownership or the benefits of being entrepreneurs never got your 40 acres in a mule we never did and so the same thing is systemically happening in our country that happened over 400 years ago today and so we see that and now we are better equipped to be able to try to help um, other minorities to get a stakeholder in that. So just to give you just a reference of what this really looks like, um, I was the second woman in the country to have a dispensary, period. Wow. And in terms of black ownership in the nation, it's less than 4%. And And what's the percentage of of blacks in jail for cannabis crime? Oh, let's just say most of our community. (laughs) And so it's like one of those things where we're like, okay, enough is enough. We need to somehow change this narrative. We need to change policy that's affecting us and be able to bring more minorities into this community. The issue is that the impact that it's had on our community has really um, kept us a little shy on wanting to pursue it. And I can say shy, but the truth of the matter is that we're so polarized in 
even wanting to pursue it or not. And because of that, um, it continues to stagger our numbers. So let me just give you what this looks like so you can see what I see every day. You have a, a nuclear family, a husband and a wife, and you, they have children. And the husband didn't have access to um, a, a high paying job or even a decent paying job and didn't wasn't able to qualify for medical benefits. And so their family did not help have health care or access to proper health care. So therefore, a patient went out and got medicine, which was marijuana. And because they were um, targeted, they were a patient was caught with the possession of a legal substance, which as we know, is medicine and was imprisoned for that to definitely address um, keeping our private um, prison system funded. And so with that, our women, our black women, such as myself, became um, single parents of three kids and we couldn't stay in our homes and we could not continue to um, live the lifestyle we once had as a single mother. And so therefore we were subsidized by the government. And in that subsidy, what we found is that our children did the same thing because we weren't equipped with proper health care. We continue to use medical marijuana and our sons were incarcerated. But what happened then was that in fact that when our sons are incarcerated, and we're using medicine in the federally subsidized housing, we lose our housing now. And so this is... This is like this horrible spiral that you can't get out of. This is exactly the problem. And so how can we go into ownership when you have a mother now displaced with her family, her son is incarcerated, as well as her husband, and then we want to go and jump in this industry? Well, you're role modeling perfectly for this. And I mean, in a good way, not I mean, you're literally role modeling exactly what, what I think everybody would want to see, which is, uh, you know, a strong African-American woman who said I'm I'm not going to be a bud tender I'm going to own the the means of production yes I just made a, ro- a marks reference so I'm going to sure get a shit ton of 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 hate mail for that but you know whatever but you know and it's also my responsibility to go back into our communities educate um next on the 23rd, I'll be back here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, it's the biggest black church in this area, over 4,000. And I will be educating our community on the benefits of medicine, but the need to enter this industry. Are you finding uh, the religious community, um, are they, I mean, the, the fact that you're speaking to four, to a congregation of 4,000 is, um, is encouraging, but are you finding it um, you know, that, that they're skeptical, that they're, they're nervous, they're scared, um, you know, or, or are they raising their hands kind of saying like, I've heard so much about this, you know, I've got an aunt or a grandmother or a grandfather who's living in pain. And I feel like, um, you know, that, that cannabis could be a solution, but I'm scared. Is that, is that still the prevailing feeling among the, the black church? Definitely. So, and the thing is, is that our community is, experiencing the healthcare disparity because of this. Now, I can push the entrepreneurship aside and talk about the healthcare benefits. Um, I have in my um, dispensary in Washington, D.C., over 10,000 patients, and I can say a majority of them are from the white population. Um, my baby boomers... You, you are in DuPont circles. So let's, <laughs> let's be 
real for a second. But if I look about the demographics in D.C., they're still not a part of the program. And that's because exactly what we're saying is that um, a lot of them do not recognize the health care benefits or they're afraid to uh, be able to possess medicine because of the story that I've just said. Are there stores in Anacostia? Yes, there are. There's um, stores located throughout um, Washington, D.C., but so northeast again, and and all. So the other, you know your DC graphics a little bit. Yeah, so we're pretty diverse. Um, we have um, representation throughout. But if I take that same narrative and go into the operations in PA that I work with, um, that's Alera Healthcare. The same thing we see, it's that the minority population, um, even in the Hispanic population, are not using medical marijuana because of the fear of incarceration. And this is a health care disparity. Now, I can talk about that. Um, but yes, if my mother, as a black woman, um, has cancer, and I know that this would help her, she would fight me tooth and nails to be able to use marijuana because she does not um, want to participate in a program that has hurt and damaged her community and possibly herself and her own family. How hard was it to convince the the pastor at the church you're going to to allow you to come? Because they're the they're the ultimate gatekeeper, and they're the one you know they have a, a large. Uh, influence in the community of their 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 congregation. So, Lewis, one thing I don't do is try to convince. I'm not in that. I'm an educator. I will educate you to the end of the day, and I will keep going as long as you want it. But that is my role here. You can take it or leave it, or you can pursue what you want with that. So that's all I do. So through education, they made an informed decision to do the next thing, which is to have the event to talk to the congregation. And I would love that. Again, the medical facts present itself. If I could take my three years of aggregated data and show you what that looks like and publish it, then I can show you the anecdotal research. I can't call it official research because if I did, I'm violating the federal law because I'm conducting research without having a Schedule 1 and license. And you can't make medical claims without FDA approval exactly. and you go to jail for that. and the spiral of events that will happen, but I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand, and I would not put my own um, integrity as a scientist, as a professional, if I did not believe in it. Let's talk about women. Uh, women grow. <laughs> Let's try that again. Let's talk about women grow. Um, you bought it. What's 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 your deal? What's going on there? Women grow. We like to grow women in this industry, <laughs> and you just and you just grow them in the in in pots. Huh? <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Huh. Um, it really <laughs> isn't because it's been such a challenge um, to even get my women to mobilize in this industries um, because of them being the primary caregiver. Or something happens to me in this industry, how are my children impacted by it? Um, will my husband support this? So I get a lot of conflict again from there. So I'm a major stakeholder in Women Grow. We're a for-profit organization that create different platforms so women can come together and empower and immobilize, immobilize themselves. Um, we don't want to immobilize them. Then no, we want to immobilize them into a place of leadership Economic, uh, economic empowerment and just personal growth. And so we have um, 
been doing a lot of reorganization with the group um, and it's been a really great experience and so currently our um, founding members um, Jane and Jasmine um, Jane West and Jasmine Hub has decided to step away from the organization and not to go for re-election on the board so we're currently looking for new board members the board has been definitely um, cleared out so then we can bring new fresh talent into the organization organization and build it to really help women diversify and be more inclusive to our communities. You're the first African-American woman to own a dispensary anywhere in the country. Um, and you bootstrapped yourself. You literally, you know, put it on credit cards. Can you talk about that experience at the beginning? Like, what was what was it like when you're like, oh, shit, this is like, what the hell am I doing here? You have no idea. Well, tell me. I want to know. <laughs> um, so what with that is that, um, so Lewis, I am a professional woman. I have a PhD. I have an MBA. I have written an uh, application myself to have a medical marijuana dispensary. And I'm in DuPont Circle. Um, it's a thriving community of patients coming in. And there was no reason why I couldn't get funding. There was, and you couldn't. You could not get. I could not get funding. Did you go to high net worth individuals? Did you go to to private equity firms? And they all went, and they did not believe in me, and they did not believe in my platform, and they didn't believe in education, and they didn't value what I had to offer, and I couldn't understand that when I went to a dispensary down the street that was just selling weed and not educating consumers on the benefits and helping patients through this process in the way that they needed to be helped that oh they could find an investment but what was the difference between me and them and he was a white dude yes exactly I and resemble that remark and so it was it was hard. It was a humbling, but I've been humbled before in many different ways. I've been in corporate America. So I was like, oh, this is just what I see reiterated yet again. Um, but what I did is this I mortgaged my home. I was able to get enough funding through my home. And did you, did you take out a, a home equity line of credit or something like that? Exactly. Oh, man. And w were you married at the time? Yes, but on the headed towards the divorce if it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's clearly worked. I, I don't know what so you're. So we're you're, still you know, married. Still wearing, so I can see you're wearing <laughs> the wedding band. So yeah, you, so clearly he's happy. Very happy. He's very happy. Is he involved in the industry? At he all? is. He is um, back in D.C. in the operations. What's your husband's name? Michael Bobo. That is my husband, and we have. Hi, four Michael. <laughs> Hi, Michael. <laughs> and we have four beautiful kids. That's awesome. How and do you talk to your kids about cannabis? Very, very age appropriately. Um, I have a 30 year old. My. Well, what? Yeah. You have a 30 year old? There is no way. There is. He actually came to the Women Grow meeting last night, and everyone was like, that's your son? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's him. I'm sure they were more like, damn, that's your son? No. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, you don't know her, really. <laughs> and so um, I have 30, 22, 19, and 9. So the, how, to the 9-year-old. Because the, the 30, the 22, and the 19, they, they, they are, you know, at least somewhat 
with it or I would assume woke on the industry. No? Oh, no. Let me tell you, kids and... um, and their ideologies and their personalities are all distinctly different from each other. If I try to group all my kids in one room, they will fight each other to the bitter end. <laughs> well, I have two I have two teenagers, so I know what you're talking about. Exactly. And they laugh at me. They go, Daddy, you work in weed. <laughs> and they, they, ex- they expand it. It's like 18 E's and then they go, weed. Weed. It's really annoying. Uh, but no, I have a very judgmental daughter <laughs> who does not believe in it and um, as much as I educate her on it she doesn't believe it's an option that um, the community can use so when you say the community do you mean her age cohort being an African-American being an African-American woman like what community that's exactly the community she interacts with on um, a day-to-day basis so yes um, she's seen how it's impacted her friends and she doesn't believe in taking those risks in returns how has it impacted because when you say that you know Everybody thinks that that using cannabis is relatively innocuous, right? It has all these great properties, and whether you're using it as an oil, a tincture, if it's a CBD, but you're, the way you said that, there's there's downside. What's the downside? The downside is that if you're in your car and you get pulled over, then you're going to get incarcerated from it. So, and again, we're in the black community. But that's the same thing as having an open beer, right? Like if you have a joint in your car and you have an open beer in your car. No, because it can, um, out of the dispensary, the bag is sealed and is staple, but you can still smell it, which brings on probable cause. And so these teenagers or um, that do have cards or adults, she's 22, um, that carry this substance, even though it's very much legal and it's transported the way it's supposed to be transported, are still subjugated to um, the the police um, targeting them. So that's again the rise of uh, minorities still being incarcerated for having marijuana. So for her community that's one distinct truth. Now the younger one when I entered the market um, she's 19 now so about seven years ago she was what 12 and I didn't know the impact that it would have on her and that was one a hard decision for me to make when I we discussed it and we decided that she, it would be more appropriate for her to go to boarding school. Um, and so she didn't feel... You sent her to boarding school because you were working in the cannabis exactly. industry? Really? Exactly. I didn't know what this would look like for her. And um, I gave up my... I gave up a lot of my... My time. It was an incredible sacrifice. I'm getting a little teary-eyed now. No, look, I I get it. I love my kids. I can't imagine sending them away because of what I was doing. That's a horrible choice. It's like a Sophie's choice. But I knew what the community needed from me, and I had to decide on which way I was going to go. And, you know, to be um, a black woman and given such a, a blessing to be a part of this, we talked about it and you know a lot of people don't know the sacrifices that came you know with that and today you know she's a wonderful kid and you know she understands and she made the choices with us but um it was hard it was very hard because the relationship i had like picking up kids for soccer and everything else didn't necessarily transpire with her so our relationship is distinctly different than it has been with the other ones where I could hit them aside their head and 
They still <laughs> love me. Hold on, me. you know what? Go, go, give me a shot. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. No, so for well, your nine-year-old, though. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's now your 19-year-old. The world is fundamentally different today than it was when you got in the cannabis industry. So you had, with your 19-year-old, it has it has actually built tension into your relationship. So what about the, with your nine-year-old? Well, the 19-year-old, it's not necessarily um, a tension thing. What it is is that um, we she's very independent, and she's self-sufficient in that way. And also, um, she suffers from a lot of anxiety, so she's a patient as well. So it's a diff- totally different narrative there. Now, with the nine-year-old, first of all, it was probably the last egg I had in my body that was suspending in like <laughs> nature somehow. And it was like, okay, he's fertilized, he's here, and um, I'm going to enjoy this last go-round. MJ. MJ. Yes. Uh, and he was not named after medical marijuana. Or Michael Jordan? Uh, more so Michael Jackson. <laughs> Michael Jackson. <laughs> Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, the M's. Right, you know am, how that goes. I, I am not going to do a he-who, I can promise you. Oh, my goodness. Well, my son actually keeps an afro like Michael Jackson did. and Because really? he loves, like, Michael. And, you know, this is um, one of the things. He's just a great kid. And... Um, MJ has actually um, been in the cannabis industry with me from um, when he was seven years old. He did his first interview with CBS and CBS asked him, you know, what does your mom do? And um, I have taught him not to say words like cannabis, marijuana, um, pre-roll joints like he knows exactly what not to say so he doesn't trigger other people in the school systems and social services to protect him now you have to understand this is that i know lewis i I, i'm i'm like tripping out here (laughs) i'm sorry that's horrible that that he cannot speak about what you do anywhere for fear that child protective services might actually come in and, and it, at a minimum review your parenting. This is a reality. And a lot of people don't know when we have these women grow meetings, we're coming together because we have um, women that are refugees. They take their kids out of their home state that won't give them access to medical marijuana and they fly and live in Denver and they separate their households because in fact, they don't want to go get locked up or get their parental rights revoked. So this is some of the like basic um, knowledge we have to share with each other in these closed environments on how to be very careful to tread um, while we're out in the the bigger world. So there is a lot of scrutiny there day to day. Um, And if uh, a kid says that, um, oh, my mom has marijuana, it can trigger it. It's a series of events so we're very careful and not only that my um my can of kids or you know we call them our can of kids our patients um they have a lot of issues with um having the right to use medication even in the school systems so if they have to medicate if you have epilepsy the parents have to go on campus pull the child off of campus go a thousand feet away out of a drug-free zone medicate the child then bring the child back and disrupt the whole day and not only that what parent can do that 
they can't sustain like I mean just a normal nine to five and so these parents are usually in some type of economic hardship because they can't one they have to spend all their money on providing medicine which is not subsidized through the healthcare systems that's bonkers and that poor kid I mean like like he needs any more reason to kind of feel left out or different from everybody else. It just, it's It's insane. So terrible. Um, so I have a question for you. Do you have any political aspirations? Are you, would you ever run for office? (laughs) I'm sorry. And I'm telling you, I might vote for you. Shonda 2024. (laughs) And I appreciate that. And what I'm doing, if I have any aspirations is to actually have more access so patients can have medication. So if I can run on that platform, you can run my campaign. How about that? <laughs> That's a deal. All right. You got it. <laughs> uh, let's end on what you're working on now. So you are, um, you talked a little bit about what's going on in Louisiana. Um, and I'm not sure if we were recording when we had talked about what's going on in California. So can you talk about what this next year is going to be like for you? It sounds super busy and super Yeah, exciting. what do you want to plug? Well, um, I just started National Holistic Healthcare. You can find us on Amazon. Look up National Holistic. It's a hemp care healthcare line. Um, I did that because uh, I wanted to understand the barriers, one, that we in the hemp business, what that really looks like with the cannabinoid system. But not only that, um, my patients needed a source of medicine that didn't have THC. Why is that important? It's because a lot, a lot of people are still drug tested. And because they are still drug tested, even though they have a full spectrum, which is a hemp product with all the cannabinoids and THC under 0.3%, a cumulative effect will cause a positive drug test. And so they think that they're not using cannabis, but they're using a derivative that can still have a positive drug um, drug effect on them. So I wanted to make sure if you're going to use it, this is an alternate that you can have that won't come up positive on your drug test. And also it's tested is um, something that I could stand by as an integrity product. Now, and that was the first thing I wanted to do because my patients needed an option, especially since I'm in Federal City, right? And then the other thing was that I needed to understand that supply chain because a lot of women and minorities couldn't afford to get in the cannabis industry um, because to apply for a dispensary is uh, 150000 $2 million in assets, or $8 million for cultivation. And so with the hemp, um, um, with the legalization of th- with the farm bill, we're able to, it's a lower barrier for access. And a lot of women and minorities can enter this industry that way, build their brands and maybe pivot by licensing their brands into the cannabis industry and building just a national brand. And this is what we have to do as an alternate since we don't have access to get into the cannabis industry. So, so we're on the we're in the backside of this. We only got a couple more questions. Um, thinking back to when you first got into the industry, what words of wisdom do you wish you had been given? Like if somebody walked up to you and said, "Shonda, this is what you're facing, and here's what I've learned." What would you? What would? What would you? If that was somebody, if if you could go back and tell yourself this, what would this be? 
That is a very interesting question. And um, there's two parts of that, Lewis, I mean, in honestly speaking. Um, I wish someone would have told me um, how hard it is to treat a patient. Um, and I'm sorry to get all serious on you, but I had a patient last week tell me she has six weeks to live. And I never have experienced that. I don't know what that looks like, but she's asked me to, to make her comfortable through those last six weeks. I have had um, women my own age immobilized by pain and cannot play with their children. Um, I have seen um, death more readily than I would like to see. And it's because that through this propaganda or this stigma that um, People are choosing medical marijuana as the last option when it truly should be on the first lines. Um, and I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, it, it's just a, it's a harsh reality. And so, um, you know, I, I, I look back, if someone had told me better prepare myself for that. Um, Can I, you prepare for that? I, I don't know, honestly, but if that was the advice, I think I would be ready for it because I've seen so many disease and disease states now. And like um, something as sim simple as, you know, Lyme's disease without a true track record, how to, to help autism. My kids, my autistic kids are coming to me by the drone. Like, you can't imagine how many kids are being treated with cannabis that are autistic now. Um, my soldiers, I had one soldier come in three weeks ago and said, I've tried to commit suicide three times, and if you can't help me, I'm going to be successful next round. I, and this is the real life stories. Um, I have had mothers come in where their sons play football broke their leg, got addicted to opioids, and they're like, just save my child. I don't want them to die. I mean, this is real life. And when you hear bureaucracy impeding on that, that's an issue for me. And it's a very painful issue because how can you say policy is worth the life? And I I struggle with that. I struggle with that all the time. Um, but thank goodness that I'm a patient myself <laughs> and I can learn that, you know, using medicine the proper way that I can, in fact, help myself through these own issues. I oh, have my card, too. Wonderful. Thank you for that support. So let's continue to change the narrative. Let's understand that we're helping more people than you actually can ever imagine and know that there's a community that is really supporting us. And I will say that that's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I think that's an amazing last word. <laughs> sure. <laughs> National Holistic um, is our dispensary in Washington, D.C. Um, we have National Holistic Healthcare, which is the hemp line, and it's also on Amazon. It's a CBD, THC, um, um, and also support us in Louisiana. Um, we are um, just building out there, spending half of my time there. So that's Alara Healthcare. And, um, and we'll put links in the show notes to all of this. Oh, you're so awesome. So 
Thank Shonda, you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. We want you to please come back. Um, we want to yes, you know, definitely find out how you're yes. doing, what's going on. And uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Our thanks to Dr. Shonda Macias. She is the owner and general manager of the National Holistic Healing Center in Washington, D.C. So if you're in the area, head to DuPont Circle and check it out. We'll have a link to all of Shonda's various initiatives, including Women Grow, in the show notes. If you want to chat with us, as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at KCSA underscore cannabis or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. <laughs>